At one point, it was commonly understood that the Earth, God's special creation for His special people, stood at the center of the universe. Everything else revolved around it. The sun, the moon, Jupiter, all of it spun around a fixed Earth at various speeds and distances. The center of all things, it just seemed so obvious. There's just one problem. It wasn't true. The Earth wasn't the center. In the 1500s, a man named Copernicus revolutionized our model of the solar system. He argued the Earth and neighboring planets revolved around the Sun and do so at staggering speeds. We now know he was right, and also just how chaotic it would be for something as large as the Sun to orbit a planet as small as the Earth. Everything would be thrown out of whack. The Sun is the central object in our solar system, defining and affecting everything else in it. The Gospel is like that. When we fail to recognize what truly stands at the center, everything else gets thrown out of whack. So what about the Gospel sets every other part in motion? It can be easy to look at the good news of Scripture and to think that the whole thing revolves around us and the salvation we receive through it. However, we can't allow the gift to overshadow its giver. God's Word actually tells us the point of the Gospel is simple. It's Jesus. He claims the center of the good news, and when we see him in his rightful position, everything else finds its proper place around him. We are starting a new three-part series describing, talking about, reflecting on the gospel of God concerning his son. And we really thought this was a great way for us to think about this because I don't know if you know, but the church has taken it on the chin quite a bit from the scientific, scientific community and those who uh, maybe have a, a position that opposes uh, the history of the church and what they believed about things. Um, and, and part of that is really true. The church for a long time saw the solar system kind of looking something like this. And that's hard to know exactly where they came up with that idea. It's not like they had a Bible verse for it. But they began to reflect upon how the universe must revolve, and they just couldn't help but see the earth as the center. After all, it was the earth that gets the, the, the most attention in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. After all, it is the place in which God chose to make a people after his own image, I mean, after all, it was the place that he sent his son to die in the place of those who needed him. So doesn't it just make sense that if all of those things are true, then the earth must be at the center, right? Let me just tell you, it's hard to keep this thing balanced this way because the sun wants to mess everything up. But if I just hold it like this, it doesn't take long for that sun to way in that direction, and it just skews everything. I, I guess now we can almost see in, in a child's model's way just the dangers of a system like this. But it doesn't it just seem logical? Doesn't it seem like that would be the way that God would do it? I, I get where they're coming from, but if you were to give me another way to try to explain how God works... I would probably pull you to those texts where God loves to describe himself as doing things in a way that would just surprise people. 
After all, if God was gonna take on human form and come and he would be a king, he must be born in a castle, right? He must be born in a fortress, right? He must be born in splendor, right? No, not at all. After all, if God is going to, to come and he's going to demonstrate his goodness, when, when his son begins his ministry, it's going to be really successful, right? Like nobody will be able to doubt it. Nobody will be deny it, right? No. I would argue that the more that I think about how the gospel works and how it orients itself, this, this, this model here has some theological problems as well. It just seems like God loves to orient everything not around us, but around the sun. Like that's what God loves to do. Not because he's trying to be ingenious or crafty or clever, but God does work in ways that, um, that absolutely surprise us. But then the more that we begin to think about it, the more that we begin to reflect on it, the more that we study and learn, the more that we realize, oh yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, that makes sense. After all, I mean, you don't have to be a science genius. I'm not one. But I can understand kind of how the sun, in terms of its amazing size in this model, can't do it justice, right? Hobby Lobby tried. This is the best that they could do. An object of this size, somehow holding objects of this size at distances much different in proportion to this, that model would just like spin apart. Like that model makes no sense. Like this model, you know, you know why it works? Because it's true. That's why this model works. That's why when they study it and they understand why, they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I totally see why and how that works. And it's good for us to, um, I guess, humble ourselves. Maybe it's good for us to always be in a position to say, how can I have an open mind, not just for open-mindedness sake, but in just genuine um, pursuit of the truth at all costs, letting the, the, the truth lead us to a place where whether you and I are comfortable or not, it really doesn't matter. Do you know how much we're going to have to change if the earth isn't at the center? Do you know how much we're going to have to swallow crow? you know how much we're going to have to apologize for? Yeah, I, I get it. But what if it's true? Last year, I had an opportunity, second time for me, to go to the Holy Land. And, and as you probably are aware, the Holy Land comes with some incredible traditions, and some of them are, are, you're pretty sure of. Some of them are, man, you could really kind of bank on this when we're standing on the steps of the temple. I mean, there's, there's no other way for us to kind of see how those stones could be there. History says, no, these are the original stones. That's why I love those stones. Probably my favorite place is to stand on the steps out front of the temple because I know that somewhere along this entire area, Jesus stood and taught. That's a special place for me. Um, because of my non-Catholic upbringing, I know about, but I've never really followed the, the different stations of the cross. But the Catholic tradition is rich with its desire to follow Jesus Christ during those final moments of his life. You know, what the events of this coming up Thursday and Friday, his betrayal. And here he was in the garden. He was right here, you know. I was able to actually worship in a church 
And this is the exact rock he leaned on, you know. And I kind of sat there in my Protestant skepticism <laughs> and said, ah, maybe. Like, how do you know? Well, tradition. Actually, let me say it better. Tradition, right? That's how you know. Now, what's interesting is, is that tradition... Tradition is one of those things that, that forces us to be honest with what we can know and what we don't know. And so, first time I went to Israel three years ago, had an opportunity to sit in the place where traditionally it was said, this is where Jesus was, Jesus was tried. These are the stones. I remember laying on, literally laying down on the stones in that room and believed that this was the place. Our guide um, who's not a believer in Christ, but is very much a believer in the God of the Old Testament. He just has a hard time with Jesus. A lot of people do, by the way. He's wrestling with this Jesus component, and he's telling, kind of like me and Ryan and a few of us off to the side, hey, by the way, I don't, hey, I got to keep my mic on this side. Hey, by the way, just want to let you know that there are some real questions about whether or not this was the place. I don't want to scare anybody but they're doing some digging over on the other side of Jerusalem and they actually believe that that might have been the place that Pilate would have come and been at. So shh, don't tell anyone. And I loved it because I got to look Ori right in the face and go, um, actually, that's fine. Like it doesn't scare me at all. Right, that, that, that doesn't concern you? No, it doesn't concern. Like our, our faith is not built on where Jesus was. Our faith is not built on an idea that tradition kind of holds true and now it's afraid of the truth. No, like our tradition is much deeper. It is, it is much more uh, stable. It is much more um, vibrant that it can actually hand the difficulty of dealing with some of these things. I said, why? Where are you getting pushback from? Well, I mean, just think about it. Like if Jesus wasn't killed here and then walked out there and then walked down this and then up over here and then tried here and then if, if it was different, then what do you do with all of those pilgrims who for thousands of years have been walking through the different stations of the cross? Um, I don't know, tell them they were wrong. Like it really didn't bother us. And it, it amazed me that he was shocked that it didn't bother us. And again, no one's arguing that Jesus didn't happen to die. But we really got to be careful with the things that we believe matter and we think that they matter the most. The earth has to be at the center. So that when the truth comes and we find out that God did something much, much deeper and much richer than that, that we still have ears to hear. And that is why it is our prayer that for the next three weeks, you'll have ears to hear the truth. The truth of the fact that what we are going to be studying is the gospel of God. I love that statement. It's found in Romans 1. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Romans. I, I know you're thinking, but wait a second. I don't seem to be able to go past Matthew in my Bible because we've been there for so long. Well, just go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then it's the start of the Pauline letters, and it's the start with the biggest one, the mo most robust one, Romans. 
a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Rome that he did not found, and he decided, I want to write out just the plan of God, the good news of God, how strong I believe in it, and I want us to read verses one through three, or most of verse three, verses one, two, and most of three, and I want us to just get a sense of what the Apostle Paul believes about this, this good news. I think you and I throw it around kind of too quickly, the gospel, you know, kind of like important news, the gospel, you know, like good news. And I guess I'm just kind of asking myself, and then I, I don't mind asking you too, because I've been having to ask myself all week, like, do I recognize how important Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection, his, his going back into heaven, the establishment of the church, because all of that is good news. The good news that in Jesus Christ, there is God's plan for the world. Do I understand how important that is? I guess what I need to even begin to be asking is, is if it's not Jim at the center, but it's Jesus at the center. I guess I got to ask, is, is my life revolving around Jesus? Or maybe one of the reasons why my life is not working, why my faith is not working, is because my model's kind of messed up. Anybody else? Anybody else just kind of sitting there this morning and going, oh, now I think I know why I worry too much. Because, <laughs> I mean, it just, it can't, the problems of my life can't bear the strain, can't bear the weight. Ugh, the sun can be a mess that way, can't it? It's just not working, it's not fitting. Hmm. Here's what Paul says, Romans chapter one, verse one. He, he begins with his name, who he is. This is how all of his letters begin. Look how he describes himself. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, who is called to be an apostle, which is small a, if you notice there. Um, the word apostle just means somebody who was sent out. We love to put a capital A on it and think it's this, this incredible position. And then the Apostle Paul says, no, I'm just someone that had a life that was going in a different direction, and God intervened in my life and sent me in his direction. That's what it means to be a Christian. Somebody whose life is going in one direction, God intervenes, and now I go in his direction. So called to be someone who is sent out, an apostle, who is now set apart for the gospel of God. Ordinarily, we think about the gospel of Jesus, we think about the gospel being good news. I love this statement. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Now you and I could get into some conversations. Is that God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit? And the answer is because of our rich Christian tradition, yes. It's the gospel of God the Father who ordained this plan. It's the gospel of God the Son who submitted to the purposes of the Father. It's the gospel of God the Spirit that empowers the good news to change our lives and sustain us for his glory. It is truly, in fact, not the gospel of Jesus, not just the gospel of the Father, not just the gospel of the Holy Spirit. It is the gospel of God. It's not something that has been made up by you and I, or people like you and me just who lived a long time ago. It doesn't appear to be wishful thinking. It is the gospel of God, and it says to show the continuity, look what he says here, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. 
So this isn't a, a, a tag along. This isn't something where God's going, okay, what am I going to do now? You know, I, this, this whole world thing's gotten away from me. I mean, I, I started out with the best of intentions and I made this incredible place and I put in these incredible people. And then all of a sudden, it just went to hell in a handbasket. And I've been trying to fix it ever since. That's not the way the Bible describes God's plan. I, I think if we're going to be honest, it's kind of how you and I look at it sometimes. Haven't you ever wondered, like, why did God wait so long to send Jesus? Anybody think that? Why didn't God just, you know, Adam and Eve mess it up. God sends Jesus. We're good to go. And then, and then the whole, why? I mean, listen, there are things too wonderful for me to know the answer to. But what the Bible wants us to believe, and what it argues strongly is this, is that God's plan about his son being at the center, about him and his eternal goodness and kindness literally has been promised all throughout the scriptures. So those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are not tagalongs after, but Paul argues, no, this is how it was always intended to be. That we're not an afterthought. I think a lot of Christian people feel like, yeah, we're kind of an afterthought. The Jews believed this for a long time, and, and we're kind of, you know, added after. No, that's really not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God's eternal plan was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And what is this all about? I love the next three words. The gospel of God, which was promised from the very beginning, and we see it all the way through the Scriptures, is it's not concerning the earth, and it's not concerning that people don't go to hell. It's not concerning that you and I are happy. It's not concerning that you and I are prosperous. It's not concerning any of those things. What is the good news? The good news is the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand concerning Jesus. Concerning Jesus. Like what happens if what you and I do isn't a total mess because we put like ourselves selfishly at the center what if we put ourselves, well, you know, nobly at the center? What happens if we put, like, our salvation here? After all, isn't that about us? Isn't there a song that Jesus considered us above all? Isn't there a song like that? I love that song. I think we run into some same problems. That many of us, when we think about the gospel and we think about the good news, literally all we think about is our salvation. And I would say that that's another reason why it might not be Jim, it might be Jim going to heaven. And, and still that model, which maybe is a little more noble than the other one, is unable to sustain if it's not true. It's unable to work, it's unable to operate. If my whole life is about my salvation, well, I've got it taken care of, I'm good. This is why I think a lot of Christian people really wrestle with, well, you know, I still go to church or I still do whatever, and we fail to, rec fail to recognize that the good news is not that I now get to go to heaven. The good news is Jesus and the fullness of his plan, which a part of it is that he died in our place for our sins, but then to establish a kingdom that you and I can then be a part of so that then you and I can live like in this place rightly ordered for his purposes and for his glory, finding our greatest joy. And that's what God desires. 
God desires for us to find great peace and joy in the truth surrounding his son, Jesus Christ, and our salvation is a part of that, but it is not that in its entirety. And so what you and I get to do for the next few weeks is to look at three really important aspects, and and I think you know why I'm doing it at this particular point in time. This week, we're going to be focusing on the death of Jesus Christ. Those, those songs, I don't know if they moved you or not, um, but they seem to have a theme in common. Was it not the death of Jesus? And one of the reasons why is, I don't know if you guys know this, but next week we're having Easter. And I'm going to be standing up here all excited about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's just really, really hard to get all excited about Jesus' resurrection unless he's dead at some point in time. Isn't it? I remember, I mean, for a number of years, I would just be preaching through a Bible book, and then we'd have Easter. I'd be standing up here, Jesus is risen. Everybody's like, yeah, we know that. Like, I'm even have a hard time next week to talk about, hey, guys, guess what? Jesus is risen. And you're going to go, I I remember. (laughs) See, what you and I need to really focus on is the depth of that statement, the, the profound nature of that statement, that Jesus Christ Wait, wait, don't think about next week. Jesus Christ, who was in fact God, like died. Like he died. Jesus, who was fully God, was dead. Was dead. And why does that matter? By the way, how is that good news? I I don't know of another group of people that celebrate like we do. The death of their, I don't know, hero, we call him Savior. Of their leader, we call him Lord. We're the only ones I know that just obsess about this. That Jesus Christ, in fact, was God, and he died. And it's good for us to to live quote unquote, on that Saturday between his death and resurrection when we, with that same level of confusion and frustration and maybe even fear, everything that we had hoped in Christ seems to have died with him. Christ, the word for Messiah. His name was Jesus. He claimed to be the Messiah, but now he's dead. And all hope, All the hope that we had, all the years that we spent following him, the disciples could say, it feels like it died with him. And what you and I get to focus on and celebrate, as bizarre as that statement is, that he did not die in vain, that it was planned for a reason, that it accomplished something. And so that's what I want to do this morning. When did Jesus Christ die? What did Jesus Christ die for? And then what has Christ's death done to us? Not for us, but to us. First question, when did Christ die? Now we could answer this like historians and say, well, most likely he was born uh, during that census period that we could actually go back and look at historically as Luke describes in in, in chapter one. Um, We could go back and say that Jesus Christ was born in 4 BC. I know it gets complicated, okay? It's the calendar that's the issue. But most likely Jesus was born around 4 BC. Therefore, he lived roughly 33 years. So in 28, 29-ish, we know that Jesus Christ, in fact, died. That's when. Any other questions? The problem is I'm not asking a historical question. 
Something about the death of God, the death of the Son of God, needs a little bit more than just a date. 1776. It just, it, it has to mean more than just a date. September 11th, 2001. No, this is the death of God. It's more than a date. So I want to know, when did Christ die? And if you just move a few chapters forward, Romans 5 tells us. Whether we like it or not, whether we want to agree with it or not, whether or not the great Christian artist Gunger wants to admit it or not. Jesus Christ died with a purpose as the prophets promised, with a plan as God designed and then worked into being. Jesus Christ died And what Paul wants to argue is, he doesn't want to argue like point in time. Was it the spring of 28 or was it the spring of 29? No, Paul's asking a much deeper question. When did Christ die? Look at what he says beginning in verse 6. Paul says this is when Christ died. Are you ready for this? While we were weak. While we were still weak. Incapable of doing good deeds to to win God's favor. Hey God, look at what I've done. Do you see me? Do, do Do you recognize all that I've done? No, too weak to do that. Too broken to reach out to him. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, instead of you and I trying to get God's attention, God's the one that comes seeking us. Adam, Eve, where are you? You know, that's what happened in the Genesis account. Adam and Eve sinned and God went seeking them. Why? Because they were afraid and they were trying to cover their shame and their nakedness. And God said, I can blow through all of that. I am going to find you. I know you're scared. I know you're naked. I know you're a failure. I'm just not going to give up on you. You want to know when Jesus Christ died? Yeah, the year doesn't matter. When we were weak, that's when he died. Paul continues. You know when it was? It was at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. He then goes into kind of an explanation, um, really, because I, I think the reason why Paul does this is because you and I think we're kind of cuter than we really are or more special than we really are or more innocent than we really are. Like after all, I mean, honestly, I'm a really good guy. Honestly, I'm, I'm doing my best. Honestly, I've not killed anybody. And I have these lists of accomplishments that I've got that look great on my resume if I'm reading my resume to me. But the Apostle Paul says in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps maybe for a good person one would dare even to die, kind of being honest. Like I, I, want, I want you to just kind of think through your, through your mind, who, who would you die for? No, I'm not asking you who you would say you would die for. I'm asking you who you would die for. I'm going to guess it's a pretty small list. And I'm going to bet you that majority of the people on that list, you literally are, are, are kind of thinking to yourself, like, they're worth it. Do you guys remember Saving Private Ryan, the movie? I remember watching that movie the first time and, and watching the beginning scene and just overwhelmed, and I'm asking this question. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could get in that shaped boat and go up on that scene knowing that that was, I don't know if I could do that. I just don't know. How many of you else were kind of thinking that? 
I don't know if I can do that. And I'm embarrassed and I'm scared and I'm thinking, what if that ever happens? I wonder if that's gonna have to happen. And then I started thinking about, no, it won't happen to me because I'm old, but it could happen to my kids. And I started getting a different kind of scared. And I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could do that. And, and the movie went on and I was so glad that it didn't just stay like that. And then it got really bad at the end. And for those of you that, that don't know much about this particular movie, it is about a young man named Private Ryan who these other soldiers are pursuing because he is the only surviving brother of a big family. Everyone else has died in the war. And they're set out, they set out to find him. And difficulties happen all along the journey. And many men who set out to find him and rescue him so that he could go home. Many of the men lost their lives in the pursuit of this one person so that they could go home. And I'll be honest, I just love Tom Hanks' character the most. He's the one leading this band of brothers and at the very end spoiler alert he dies and his death was, was rather painful it actually made the front of the movie easier to stomach because he's kind of leaning up against this wall on this bridge and it's now, it's now done Private Ryan can now go home the battle is over enough and he's going to be able to go home and do you remember what happens? Tom Hank grabs him and he brings him close with one of his dying breaths do you remember what he says? scariest lines in the movie earn this like make the sacrifice for your life worthy and then it goes back to kind of modern day and he's now an old man Private Ryan is an old man and he's with his family and he's standing in front of Tom Hanks tombstone this white cross field he turns to his wife with tears down his eyes and tell me I've been a good man tell me I've been a good right I'll tell you that's scarier how do you earn that like how do you earn that like Five of your fellow soldiers died rescuing you so that you could go home. How do you live with the weight of that? That scared me even more. Forget about dying on that first day. Can you imagine, can you imagine the pain of living knowing that somehow you were rescued from that? Now that's a burden. And what the gospel actually says is that at the right time, Christ died for us. Like while we were weak, while we were undeserving, we weren't really good. Look at verse eight. This isn't like good men. It's not about us being good and earning it. Look at what he says in verse eight. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not just still weak, but still sinners, Christ died for us. Like do you understand the value and the importance of that? You understand why the date on which Christ died really doesn't matter? Now, now do you understand the difference between tradition and truth? When did Christ die? When you and I needed him. When past generations needed him. I would even argue this. There's a, there's a great verse in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. It's not going to show up on the screen. 
But the Bible actually says this in Revelation 13.8. It describes this, this group of people that are easily deceived and they love to follow a false sense of worship, a false idea of worship. Everyone except for those whose names were written in the book of life. Those whose names were written there because the lamb died for them. Which lamb? The lamb that was crucified. And then Revelation 13.8 says this. Crucified from the foundations or the beginning of the world. You do realize that God sets Adam and Eve in place knowing full well. Now this creates its own theological problems, but knowing full well of their failure and Christ's redemption. That God commands Moses to go and speak the truth to Pharaoh, knowing very full well that the law that he gives him will lead his people towards, but not totally satisfy, and that one day his son, Christ, will come and save them all. That God gives David the strength to slay a giant, full aware that he will still need a savior and that he is still coming, and Jesus Christ is going to rescue David from a foe that he could never beat with his own hands. Like, this is the bigness of our God. When did Christ die? When Adam and Eve were still broken? When Abraham was still broken? When Noah was a mess? When you and I were completely helpless? When you and I had no ability to stand and demand? When you ability with tears in our eyes? Tell me I'm good. Tell me that my life has meant something. Think about this. Your life and my life and even the lives of those people who right now are not even following God, they meant enough to him that he would send his son while they were still a mess to rescue them. Wow. That's when Christ died for us. Well, what did Christ die for? Like, was it so bad that he had to die? Like, couldn't he have just gone to the, like, you know, the Red Cross and donated some blood? Like, couldn't he maybe, I don't know, take a beating? Why did he have to die? And the answer is, we don't fully understand why this works, but God is both the just, meaning he is righteous and pure, that God, God demands the, the, the kind of perfection and the kind of holiness that only God himself can provide for. And so the Bible teaches a very difficult thing. What did Christ die for? Listen, not just you and I. Bigger than that, actually. That's still you and I with the earth at the middle. If, if God just died for us, no, God died for, for, for this, this, this insatiable need inside of himself that his holiness be maintained. Like his holiness, which really stands at the center of a universe, like a sun. And if it's somehow, if there's no integrity in that, the entire universe will just split apart. Like God just can't look the other way at our sin. God can't just pretend that everything is fine, even the small stuff. No, it's just one big universal mess. And God desires it to be made right, and the only one that can make it right is him. And so God sends his son, Jesus. Now, this is a complicated piece. This is the part that a lot of people right now, now they've, they've got their people who kind of mirror them throughout history, but there's a lot of people that just cannot believe that what we have done as humans is so, okay, now maybe Charles Manson, what he did was so bad, but not what I did, not what you did, not what my kids have done. None of that is so bad that it deserves the death of God. 
But actually the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. So look at Romans chapter five, beginning in verse nine as it continues on. What did Christ die for? Here's what we see. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. We have been made right by his blood. Or literally, you could take synonymously, it's his death. It's not something that he could donate. It's something that he had to sacrifice to the very end. His death. We've been justified by his death. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ died in our place so that God's righteous wrath, which I deserve, which you deserve, it makes total sense that God is righteously angry with you because you and I have failed him. You and I have openly rebelled against him. You and I, out of ignorance or out of selfishness, you and I have confronted, you and I have opposed, you and I have rebelled against him, and he's right for his feelings of wrath. We've robbed him of glory. We have robbed him of so many things. God isn't just someone who is... Um, temperamental and difficult to please. No, he is right in his judgments. And it says, we have been saved by him, that's Jesus, from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for while we were enemies, and I'm, I'm really focusing on the enemies part, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So again, kind of pointing back to the first beat, while we were sinners, while we were still weak, and now he is saying is that while we were enemies, God sent his son to die in our place to bring us close. What did he die for? Because truly there was a God out there, and he's still out there, who was rightly, um, righteously angry with you. Like with you. I mean, this could take all day with you. Maybe it'd be good for me to do. Maybe, maybe next Sunday I'm just going to come out and go, God was righteously angry with you and 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 yes, you too, little girl. Dad, do you know that? Like even the little ones? Like think of the weight of this. I just don't want to think about it. I just, I, I really don't. I don't want to think about it. I just, I cannot handle thinking of God that way. Okay. I guess we could try it another way if you want and see how that spins. See, the Bible makes it very clear. It's really not up for debate. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus Christ, in fact, died while we were enemies, while we were opposed to him, and he died to calm the righteous wrath of God. I really think that's why Jesus says, God, take this cup, Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. The word cup there in the Greek is referring back to the wrath of God that is poured out in bowls. Literally, it's like a bowl. He's not thinking of a communion cup. He's thinking of the wrath of God. God, I want, I want you to take this cup from me. I don't want to receive like your wrath being poured out on me. You thought it was the nails that he was worried about? 
I mean, they'll hurt, but there's nothing like being the object of the wrath of God, but God the Son was for you and I. Ephesians chapter two, verse three says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, I remember that, carrying out the desires of the body, I remember that, and of the mind, oh yeah. And we were by our own nature children of wrath. Romans 3, verses 23 through 25 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are also justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I know we don't use that word propitiation a lot, but the word literally means that someone else receives wrath so that others can receive a gift. That's what that word means. Like, did you know that's why Jesus Christ died? That there was a God that was rightly angry with you? And Jesus Christ said, I will take the full brunt of the punishment that they deserve so that God the Father would be at peace with us. Okay, so who is this good news from again? So God's mad, but then Jesus is happy. Do you see why you have to have a very whole understanding of the Trinity? So is God the Father mad and God the Son says, fine, I'll go down there and help those losers? Now whose plan is it to send the Son? God the Father. I mean, this is why it's so important for us to have a very whole understanding of how God works. So I just want to ask one final question. So then what has Christ's death done to us? We've already talked about what it's done for us. My question is now, what has it done to us? Romans 5.11 says this. I love the way that he ends this section. So then we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Our response in finding out the truth that our salvation isn't at the middle, but Jesus is at the middle. The realization that, man, I really was a mess and I really was like gonna get some serious heat from God the Father poured out upon me and Jesus Christ took it. What is my response? You know what? This is why I continually say, we don't talk about the death of Christ so that you and I can feel bad. It's not, look at what Jesus did for you. I hope you're happy. You know, he died for you. I hope you're ashamed. It's not that at all. The good news of the gospel really is good news. That's why those preachers who preach about the death of Jesus Christ just to heap on guilt upon us, they don't get it. I want to focus on the death of Christ and deal with the fact that that wrath was intended for me so that I can look at God and just rejoice. Oh, is God not good? Let me try that again. I think you'll know what to do here. I'll try this again. So I look at all of what God has done, and I'm thinking about, man, that wrath was for me, and then I stop and I ask and I say and I scream and I sing, is God not good? And God's people said, yes, he is so good. Man, like he could have just let us go and everything would have been fine. No one could argue with him. Like even I, at the end of time, when God said, but look at what you did, I'd go, yeah, you're right, I deserve this. I deserve your wrath, I deserve your torment, but God is so good in his love, he sent Jesus in our place, and for that we rejoice. See, I want you to just, as I close, look at this Go Gather Grow thing, and I want you to just see it again from this much deeper and more profound perspective. 
You realize that when we look at what Jesus Christ has done, his death, we are ready to go. We are ready to serve others because we've seen how God has served us. We're ready to travel around the world. Why? So that others might get a glimpse, just a small little glimpse at the goodness of our God and what he has done. I just can't keep this good news to myself. I can gather together in biblical community whether I feel like I need it or not. Why? Because look at what God is doing in us. And I want to live in community with other people who are like me, who love to celebrate God's goodness. And I can actually put up with their failures and their shortcomings, not just in light of the fact that they're putting up with mine, but that God sent his son to die for all of us. And when Jesus Christ comes back, I know you think he's just coming to your house. But the Bible always describes him not coming for individual Christians, but for the body of Christ. Therefore, do not neglect meeting with one another. That's what the Bible says. And the reason why I want to grow in understanding of who he is and obedience to him, you know why I want to do that? Because when I look at what he has done for me, I want to know more about him. Like, a God that would die like that? Like, I need to know more about him. I need to know how the Trinity actually fits together. Not because I think I can know it perfectly, but I just want to know more about him. Do you remember when you were in love? Like, way back when with the one you're now married to? Do you remember when you fell in love with your child, like in that first day in the hospital when you fell in love? Remember that? And now you're just trying to keep that feeling alive? Now you're trying to just keep that memory alive? Remember when you wanted to know more about them? See, when you reflect on the goodness and the greatness of God, do you not just want to know more? And that's why I want to grow in my understanding of who he is and my obedience to him. So at this time, I'm going to challenge our, our servers to go back and we're going to prepare our hearts right now to receive communion. I want you to think about that. Now, do you see why we wanted communion at the end? Like, even though I'm telling you everything that you already know, even though I've already explained this a million times before, how many of you heard that Jesus Christ died for you? Raise your hand. You know this, right? Isn't it good for us to just stop and reflect on it? You know why? Because if I don't think about that, then um, the concerns that I might see on the news could overwhelm me. You know, just um, my, my current financial state might just really overwhelm me. Maybe a struggle that one of my friends is going through might absolutely cause me to break. But when I sit and reflect on the death of Jesus, everything finds its rightful place. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for Jesus and for how he comes and stands, sits, <laughs> leads, loves at the center. And God, as we eat and drink together, may we be truly grateful for what you have done. May we rejoice in what you have done. May what you have done center everything else. May our calendars May the use of our time and abilities, the expending of our emotional anxieties and energies find their center around Jesus. And at the center of that, 
around what he accomplished that we could not do on our own. May we eat and drink well this morning. In Jesus' name, let it be. there are two ways to look at the gospel. One places me at the center of the story with everything revolving around that. And the other places Jesus at the center with everything revolving around that. The question is, how do you know which one is you? How do you know which gospel you hold to? One of the best ways to know is to simply look at your life and ask this question, how do I respond to Romans 5? How do I respond to the death of Christ? See, if, if I sit at the center of the story, if the whole point of the gospel is my own salvation, well, then my response is pretty simple. I simply accept that. I put my faith in Jesus. I thank him for saving me. And then I go about my business. We show up on Sundays at church to kind of thank him again here and there. But the truth is I'm free to kind of live how I want and, and go and gather and grow or maybe some good options for a little better life. But, you know, if I don't really do all of that, I mean, grace, right? There are a lot of people who live that way, not just today, but even back in Paul's day when he was writing Romans, there were people so confused about the, what, what Paul was saying in the gospel, thinking that it kind of revolved around us, that they would think, well, I can keep living the way I want. In fact, Paul phrases it with this question in Romans 6. Then if grace is this big, if he was so good to save us, then I can just continue sinning because grace will abound, Right? But if Jesus sits at the center of the gospel, then, well, actually, the response is still fairly simple. I receive that grace. I thank him for saving my life, and then I give my life right back to him. Then I go about his business. Then go and gather and grow our natural responses to what he's done for me. And the death of Jesus, if he sits at the center, becomes the natural paradigm for how I see my life. Paul will say it like this in Romans 12:1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in light of all he has done for you in Jesus, I urge you, therefore, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him, for this is your reasonable act of worship. So, brothers and sisters, May we allow Jesus to take his rightful place at the center of the gospel and also at the center of our lives. May loving obedience be your natural response to the truths that were presented to you today. And may we, in view of God's mercy, offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is the only reasonable response. We love you. See you on Wednesday and see you next week at Easter.